Well, um, how many like the uh, kind of little country little edge there? I, I don't know who who that is. Is that? Uh, but you can just kind of feel that there. Um, how many of you are like really into country? Um, yeah. Okay. We feel sorry for you. Anyway. Uh, no. What a great morning, Palm Sunday morning, and it was just fun to have our youth all the way from high school on down to participate and to be a part of this service with us, and I kind of let them do the stuff that they're comfortable with. When you hear that kind of pounding noise in the basement, that's kind of what's going on downstairs, so be um, a little bit gracious when you hear that sometimes when, you know, that's going on in this service. Um. You know, I just want to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we just ask that you would take these words and you would allow for us to to gain wisdom from you. That you would speak to our hearts. I ask that you would speak through me. And your word is powerful and your spirit is present. And we give you thanks and give you freedom, Holy Spirit, in this time in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I was just thinking about this as I've been doing this series. And and it's all about... um, kind of a builder and a plan, and, and the, it's all about um, this whole work that this, uh, the Old Testament was about, and now this new, better work, that this idea that, that there's a better life because of someone who has come who's better, who's put the whole thing together for us. And I was thinking about this uh, after the service in the second hour, um, we're going to be doing this kind of symbolic groundbreaking outside, praying God that it will stay kind of without rain until... Uh, a certain point. But I, as I was thinking about this this week, um, I realized the best plans are only as good as those who plan them and those who carry them out, right? I mean, it could be a, 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 a wonderful dinner that's being made. It could be a project that you're engaged with at work. And the best plans usually are planned by someone who has the qualifications to do it, and then people have some of the abilities carried out. And as I thought about it, I thought, um, just think, what if I were to tell you that this building we're going to be putting up, um, I was the guy who drew up the blueprints. You know, I had all the specs in order. You know, you're laughing like you don't think so. And... and, and I know that you probably would really rather have someone who's qualified as an architect to, to, you know, in some firm that has all the you know, little letters behind it or whatever else needs to be there. But let me just tell you then, in reality, we really do have a very good architect in a firm that has put this together so you don't need to worry. But the elders in all their wisdom got the thinking that in order to save costs, they asked if I would build it. And you saw how good that team is behind me. They said I could do it with that team. And now you laugh again because what? The best plans really depend on somebody who has the qualifications to do it. And um, the best plans are also dependent on someone who's able to actually carry it out and execute it. They have the ability to do it. And on Palm Sunday, what we um, are coming to give thanks to God for is that this whole deal, this whole thing of being in church and this whole thing of living with God and living in relationship with him wasn't our plan. Praise God. And we're going to find out somehow it wasn't even ours to carry it out, to make it happen, to actually be saved, to be present with him, to 
to be in relationship with him. In fact, that's what Hebrews is all about. There is someone who planned it and someone who executes it, and you get to enjoy it by trusting it and moving into it. That's what Palm Sunday is about. And this whole series of better life is, is, if you really think about it, if you want the best life possible, now you could be the person who is the architect of your life, right? And as the architect of your life, you could execute those plans and maybe have an okay life. And I don't know what you would say when you stand before God with your life, but think of it this way. What if you wanted a better life? You might want a better architect than yourself. You may want a better builder, one who executes the plan. That even if God gave you it. And so what does that look like? So that's kind of what we've been looking at. And so um, what we've been taking a, a, a look at through the, the past few weeks, I'll just do a real quick review of last week. Last week we said that Jesus offers a better hope in this better life. And as our high priest, we looked at chapter 4 through about chapter, the end of 6 or so. Jesus understands us because he, in every way, is like us. Fully human. He has been tempted in every way like you and like me. And he brings us to God because he has a sinless life. Tempted in every way without sin. He is perfectly sinless as the high priest who goes through the physical realm, we said last week, enters into the spiritual realm, which we can't see, but all around us. If you had eyes to see according to what the word of God said, you would have eyes. In fact, in the Old Testament, they called them seers, people who could kind of see through the curtain of this realm. It could see angels and could see demons. They could see that there wasn't just this heaven way out there and this earth that we live in, but there's this, this what so often people live with this excluded middle. Jesus went through that. And he comes before the very throne of God, not offering some animal sacrifice and offering a sinful life, but he offers to God, the Father, a perfectly sinless sacrifice, a life, his own life. And so the author goes on at a certain point and he stops with a warning he's been giving him. He said, quit drifting. Don't just kind of, you know, drift through all this stuff. Um, get engaged. He then stops at a certain point and says, don't be disobedient. Don't walk kind of high hand and say, you know, and I, I, I know you said these things, but I don't really care. And then he comes to a point, he goes, grow up. It, it, you need to realize that If you have had this life of God in you, the life of God will manifest itself. You will not be able to live in perpetual immaturity. And then he ends with this hope. And I'm going to give you these verses. It's kind of the Meyer paraphrase, kind of pulling together the Greek in this. And it says, Now we who have run for our very lives. This is chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, just before we get into the passage here. Now we who have run for our very lives into the heart of God's faithfulness have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. This certain hope, which is Jesus, is like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God himself. This unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaches through this earthly realm right into the very presence of God where Jesus, our trailblazer, pioneer, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us. And then he makes this little line in the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, you've got to catch those last words because he has this idea that he enters, he begins to introduce an argument in, in some of the things before he actually brings up in detail what he's going to talk about. So in chapter 5, verse 6, he says in the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 5, verse 10, in the order of Melchizedek, he's setting us up for what he's going to explain until he comes to verse 20 of chapter 6 and he says, in the order of Melchizedek. Not like the priests of Aaron or the priests of Levi. Not merely a human priest, but now he's going to talk about his role as a God-divine priest. He is both fully human without sin, and he is fully God and understands us. So two things I want to stress this morning. Although like last week, um, these two chapters, we're looking at chapter 7 and 8, are a lot. There are many things that we're going to actually just have to fly by again. We're going to take that 40,000-foot view. We can't get down into it like as if you're walking and, and kind of explore it more closely. We're just going to take this, this broader view. And there's two things that I believe are important that stand out from this higher perspective. Hebrews 7, a better priesthood. And then Hebrews 8, a better plan. Now, everybody ready to take off? Get your seatbelts in? All right? Um, those in first class, have you had your treats? Seriously. They haven't? Yeah, would the ushers come down and please give the... Uh, this is first class, by the way, about the first five rows in these three center sections. And if you didn't know that, I, in the future, you're going to want to sit here. And I say that for a couple reasons. I'm not kidding, right? I feel bad for you, those of you who are sitting in just the regular seats back here. You could actually be in the front seats. And I'm hoping you'll take those because as we start our building program, we're going to actually be taking out these side seats on both sides. So we're going to have to ask you to kind of move in and, and beat more towards the center. And, and we would love for you to do that. And, and, and by the way, um, we're actually thinking of adding some comfort select right behind everybody here. Because <laughs> you get treats too. Did you guys get your drinks? I see someone has a drink in their hand. Okay. Now, I'm glad you do. Um, I say all this because also on these side sections, I would love for you to be over here. You can be more engaged um, in worship and in the message. Um, you don't get as good a sound on the sides. That's the other thing. Sound quality isn't as good. So, okay, enough of the announcement on that. Um, let's get into this. Hebrews 7, a better priesthood. Yeah, don't go past those rolls, man. They didn't pay for that. A few of you... Aren't our flight attendants good looking? Okay, a better priesthood. Let's look at Hebrews 7. In the first verse, the author tells you why Jesus is a better priest. And this is going to be technical, but I want to run through this because it's in Scripture and I think it's helpful to to know. And and I'm going to ask if you could kind of bear with me as we go through some of this. Because it begins by telling us that Jesus is both a king like Melchizedek and a priest like Melchizedek. He is a king-priest. That's not true for the line of Aaron. That's not true for the priests of Levi. So Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. What's interesting is he brings up Melchizedek, and, he, and, and Melchizedek is only mentioned in just two places in the Old Testament, and hardly at all. He's mentioned in Genesis. He's told about, we're told about this in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, four verses. And then he's mentioned again in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's it. This whole thing, chapter 7, and a lot of it is built on this guy who shows up for a very brief time. 
But they're really important passages of Scripture because they, they are a type, a shadow. Remember, everything he's talking about is that Jesus is better. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is to point to this Jesus. And even this, Melchizedek, who shows up as a king and priest, is a shadow. It's as if the sun is setting on the Old Covenant and Jesus is standing there and the shadow of it is seen by the fact that there's a person called Melchizedek who shows up. And Psalm 110 is really important. Jesus quotes it. It's found all throughout uh, a number of places. In scripture, it's all about the truth of this Messiah who's going to come. And they were all, all throughout, you can see in the writings of, of, the, of the Jews that they were looking for the Messiah. And Psalm 110 was a very, very important messianic scripture. So let's continue on. As he, as he says this, he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 7, this Melchizedek was the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. And he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings. So that was, that was he, he was coming into this land that God had promised him, and in doing so, he had to defeat. And when we think of kings, we think of king of England. These are small city-states who had princes or rulers over them. That's what this kind of idea is. And so he comes in, he's defeated a few of these as he gains this land, and, and, and Melchizedek comes before him, and he blesses him, and Abraham gives a tenth of everything that he had gotten from those defeats. First, the name Melchizedek, the author stops just to say, means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. And so the name means king of righteousness, kind of fitting as a type to come. And then he, he prefigures this one who is also the king of Salem. And Salem is the word really shalom. It means peace and wholeness. And so he's a king and a priest. He rules over a city of peace. He rules over a people who experience wholeness and peace. Here is Melchizedek, who is the king. And, and if you um, go back to some of the writings, Josephus, who was a historian, who was a Roman historian, writing around the times of Jesus, said Salem, or the the city Shalom was, was the city of Jerusalem. And the church fathers, Jerome and others, tell us that this was the city. So it's a very interesting thing. This writer is going, remember this, this one who preceded Jesus as a shadow? He was a king bringing righteousness. And, and then he makes the next statement, he's a king over a city or a people where there is wholeness and peace. If you look at verse 3, he says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, catch this, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, he's using a method of argument that we're not really used to, and it's very difficult to understand in some ways. It was very popular in the day he was writing out of a school called Alexandria. It was called typology, and it was all about types, and they would look at Scripture, and they would they'd look for types, and they would kind of see their fulfillment of those types. And so that's what he's doing here. And so he says... Um, this, um, this passage, this, this person who comes is a better priest because he comes before Moses and all the priesthood that was set up by the law in that first covenant. He sets up a priest who is like Jesus, who has no beginning days and no ending days. Now, is he a real person? Um, there's all kinds of theories. Again, we're not going to get down into it, so I won't get there, except for the point of it is this person points to who Jesus is in all ways. So in the next verse, 7-4, the author says, think with me for a second. Now he's going to go in and just show you how much greater a high priest Jesus is than the priest under the plans of Moses. And so he starts to list four things, and we're going to go through these and um, stay with me as we fly overhead, okay? How many are still with me? Got your seatbelts on? Okay, good. 
The author says, think with me. You'll see how much greater he is. First is, he says, Jesus, our high priest, is, in a, is of a higher order than the priests that were of Moses. They're a higher order, a different class. You, you, by this, he's kind of just making, he's just in a class all of his own. Ever, ever played in, let's say, a sport or something? You may play tennis with someone, you go, whoa, that person's in a class all of their own. They're really good, Right? Or, or you're with someone and, and you're cooking and you go, whoa, they really understand how to make a, a meal. Um, that's what he's kind of saying here. He's, he's in a class all of his own. He's not anything like these priests of Moses. So he goes on, he says, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. That was a big deal that he would give him an offer, a tenth. Even though Abraham was the most honored and favored patriarch of all God's chosen ones, he gave a tenth of the spoils of the battle to Melchizedek. And it would be understandable if Melchizedek had been a Jewish priest for later on, in the time of Moses, God's people were required by law to support their priests financially because the priests were their relatives and Abraham's descendants. But this man, a complete outsider, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed Abraham who carried God's promises. Now he goes on and he explains it further. Verse 7, And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Simply stated, the fact remains, even as great as Abraham is, Melchizedek is greater because the one who has the power to impart a blessing is superior to the one who receives it. In verse 8, or look at it this way. Here's another. He says, According to the Moses plan, the tithes are paid to the priests who die. But Abraham paid tithes to a priest who lives on, never dies. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Catch this argument here. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi, if I was to kind of paraphrase it, was a twinkle in his eye, right? He hadn't been born yet. Levi, he says, was still in the body of his ancestor. In this way, once again, Melchizedek is superior to Levi. So in every way, Jesus is of a different class than the priest's of Moses. He's trying to make this very clear for these people who are beginning to kind of figure out, is Jesus the person I want to follow with my life? Can I, is, he, is he a qualified one who plans and also executes your plan of salvation, allowing for you to experience the life that God wants you to experience, the better life? The second thing he says, Jesus' work as a high priest is more effective as a as, as a service than it is of the priests of, the, of Moses. And again, verses 11 through 19, follow with me, because I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of do this in a more of a paraphrase, these verses, so you can understand the meaning. If perfection or maturity could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the Moses' priests, and indeed the law was given to the people and established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. Obviously, in the law, the law didn't make it possible for you to live a perfect life. It didn't make it possible for you to come with a perfect life into the very presence of God. So he goes on and says, verse 12, For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. Their system, their plan that they had must also be changed. God sent a new and different rank and order of priests and meant a new law would have to be instituted even to allow it. And a new covenant had to be drawn up. A better plan was needed for our sake, is what the author is saying. 
Verse 13, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. So they weren't even of the tribe of, of Levi or, or of Aaron. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. So this is setting up the idea, not only is he a priest, who God, in this moment, you'll hear, is appointed in, in by oath, but you're going to hear also he's of the tribe of a royal line of Judah. He goes on and says, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, which is where David, who was the closest to being a king and priest, and I, again, I can't get into all that. And in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, according to the tribe of Judah. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation, as according to ancestry or lineage, but on the basis, catches, of the power of an indestructible life. That's why he is who he is. A priest forever. For he says, it's declared in verse 17, you are a priest forever in the order or the class of Melchizedek. And the former plan or regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. It couldn't do for you what it needed to be done. Couldn't do for the people of Israel. For the law made no one, nothing, perfect and mature. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Basically, laws given to the priests of Moses pointed to the need to be holy, yet the laws themselves Never made anyone holy and pure. If you seek to follow the law, there's two things that are going to happen. If you seek to say, God, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to depend on on being a good person. You hear that all the time, right? I'm going to be sincere and good. And I'm going to just, my weight of my life before you is going to rest on that, the fact that I really tried hard to be good. He he basically says two things usually happen in that. Usually you become uh, a person of pride because somehow you think you have the ability to measure up to what God's standard is and, and, and you really are fooling yourself and that's what you see when you see the Pharisees and others. They are basing their sense of goodness compared to everyone else. I'm just not like the prostitute sinners and all the rest. I, I, I am, you know, comparatively and, and what God is saying, you got the wrong standard. If you're going to base your goodness on anyone, you have to base it on the sinless person of Jesus. Now compare yourself. How'd you do? He says it should rock your pride. But what happens so often is we, we get into this place where we try real hard and we then become fooling ourselves and we live in our pride. Or the other thing is this. You try really hard and you just know you can't do it. And if you're really honest with yourself, you go, you know what? I mess up and I screw up on a regular basis. I, I have to tell you that sometimes is so discouraging to me. You know, I, I, I could, I, yesterday I could just, in some of my reactions and stuff, I just go, oh, God. Some of my attitudes at times. Anybody, anybody else relate to that from time to time? If you really pay attention to your life, you kind of go, if I'm going to try and do it on my goodness and I'm comparing myself to the real standard Jesus, I, I'm not going to do real well if I'm really honest with myself. And it's, it could be disparaging to a point of despair if it's based on yourself. So there's a whole lot of people, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, others, who just said, I give up. There's a whole lot of people who aren't in church today. You know why? Because they are so, uh, they just go, I can't be like that over here. And they're not willing to kind of hoodwink themselves thinking that they're good enough. They're over here going, I just give up. Isn't going to do any good. And so he goes on and he just says, um, here's, 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 here's what qualifies you, is the resurrection. As the NIV says, it's on the basis, not of some lineage of a priest, but on the power of an indestructible life, a life that could never be put down. Evil just couldn't kill it. Isn't that amazing? 
put in a cross, put in a grave. We're going to look at this. Can't be put down. And then he goes on, Jesus, not only that he has a higher order class in himself, his work is more effective, which we just talked about, but there's also a better aspect to his high priestly work, and that is that he's more firmly established than the priests of Moses. They were established on the lineage, their ancestor. It was just, you know, it was a birth or right. You know, did I, did I, am I of the line of Levi? And you look at the legal documents, you go, you're a priest. It didn't matter if you're a scoundrel, as long as you're just, you know, of that line. But he says there's a better, better hope here. It's not just on some lineage. It's not some birth or right. It's actually on something greater than that. It's that God himself says, you know what, Jesus, he's the one. He's the person. He's the one I've selected. He will be. It's my plan, and together we are going to execute this, and he, by my promise, will be able to save you. So verses 20 through 21, not only the resurrection does he say, but by the fact of his promise. And verse 20 says, and it was not without an oath. Exclamation mark. Others become priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant or plan. Now, I'm going to swoop down for just a moment because that word guarantor is really important. It's only used here in the um, Old Testament, in this, I mean, in the New Testament in this place. The only time it's used. It's used in a lot of classical literature, but only here for one reason. That word means a pledge is something that will happen someday. Um, it can also mean a, a commitment to something in the future. But this word in this place actually means this. It means not just a future pledge, but it means something that that is present, that has happened today and carries on through the future forever. It is something that you may not see, but it's true. It's been done. And Jesus is the surety, is, is another word for that, of this better plan because Jesus is the better priest. In classical literature, the guarantor was a person who guaranteed that a legal obligation would be carried out. So that you read in verse 23, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. There is power, as we heard, in the name of Jesus to save you forever completely and in every way. And I just know that you might go, but I don't see the transformation taking place the way I'd like it to in my life right now. And he just says, you know what? If you walk in a humble, trusting your life to this Jesus who has promised he would give you his life and would put into your heart his spirit, he will, as you walk with him in humility and trust, and you lean into it. Here's your part. Here's our part. You see, salvation is not, doesn't mean that you don't participate. It means you don't have to do the good works. It means you trust. It means that when God's spirit begins to prompt you to do what is right according to his word, you follow his spirit's prompting. And as you do that, you allow for him to come in and transform you. It's when you come to a place where you feel like, you know, I didn't measure up, I didn't do it. It's, it you get done condemning yourself because there's been one who's taken your life and you are now really in the eyes of God, no longer condemned. You just recognize it and go, God, I blew it again and I need your strength, I need your love, I need to trust you more fully, I need you to help me walk through this. 
And so he, it's kind of what his point is. What the last thing, let me just share with you the last thing that he says. Finally, Jesus, our high priest, is exactly suited to our need. He says, such a high priest, in verse 26, truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. First, for his own sins. He, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of other people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who had been made perfect forever. So now he comes to the end and he's, he's done. He's been talking about... he's. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He gives a better rest than Joshua. He's then better than the high priest. And he explains all that. Now he gets into the work through the rest of the chapter. So chapter 8, verse 1 is an, is an interesting change because he says, now, I want you to compare because in chapter 4, 14, when he starts speaking about the high priest, he begins and he says, we have a great high priest. Now, when he comes to 8, 1, he says, we have such a high priest. Everything I've explained to you, it's in place. Now, he says in verse 1, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. And verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it is necessary for this one who is also has to have something to offer. If we were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there has already been priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, here's the verse, verse 6. The ministry Jesus has received is superior, better, as than theirs, as the covenant which he is a mediator is better or superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So here's the deal. The high priest has done everything that needs to be done. He has had the plan, he's ex- executed it, and now he says it's been executed. Here's what he wants you to know. These verses, and I'm just going to ask you to follow with me, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first plan or covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. The problem with the first plan was that it wasn't all about God. It was God combined with people. Here's the law. You follow the law, and if you're good enough and perfect enough, you will be accepted. But that, he says, he, God found fault with the people. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant or plan with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And here he says it again, because they did not remain faithful to that, my covenant, my first plan. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, their unfaithfulness, their turning away their inability to actually do what needs to be done. And I will remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. What's really interesting is those words there, they'll soon be outdated and disappear. 
This writer was writing about 10 years or somewhere in that period of time before Rome went through, decimated the cities, went into Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, took the temple, and it says there was not one stone left upon another. And from that day on, so he's speaking prophetically, from that day on, that old system was completely done with. You don't see it any longer. No one's offering sacrifices in a Jewish faith. It's done. And, and God was just basically saying, I'm going to put an end to that. And I'm going to do something that you couldn't do. Here's the plan, God says. He makes it really clear. God says, you get out of the saving business. I will save you completely, fully, absolutely, thoroughly, and forever. I will do it. I will do it for you. I have done it through Jesus on the cross. If you have trusted in him, it's done. So the first requirement to get out of the saving business, he says, is just to recognize that you're not good enough. That's one of the first things. It's good. I'm not good enough. And the other side is, go, my badness is better than I thought. I don't know if that's a good way to say it, right? Um, I'm worse than I think. The old plan didn't work. The second requirement is to admit that you're the problem. The fault lies not with the, fa- the first plan so much as with us in our ability to work the old plan. Verse 8, but God found fault with the people. Romans 3.23, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's how the plan works. He says, I'll save you. You just admit you need to be saved from your selfishness and sin. Just raise your hand and say, you know what? I have a problem with selfishness. Anybody here have a problem with selfishness? Anybody self-absorbed a little bit? Okay, just a few of you. So this is for you. You see, Palm Sunday was this time when Jesus came into the city and, and they were looking for a king and they wanted a king who would come in and would take the political throne and he'd change everything. He'd kick out Rome, he'd make things good. They would have wine, women, and uh, I know, they'd have wine and, and food and all that. They were looking for the good life. Change it out here. And Jesus goes, that's not what is needed how often do I and do you live, do you kind of live this life where you kind of go, you know, Jesus, right now even, if you just change this stuff here, and Jesus is all, the, the new plan is all about the heart. And it's not about you even trying to change your heart. It's just about you recognizing that I need someone, I need a new heart. I need someone who has lived this life and who comes before you, God, and who is always interceding on my behalf, not just for a little bit till I get okay, but forever. I recognize today that my life, my very life, the very breath that I breathe is not something I have control over. It is all by the grace and mercy of God. The very fact I was born, the very years that I have in this life, the very things that I can do with my hands, the very things I can think with my mind, the very life that I've been given has been given by the grace of God. And yet we go, but you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good enough for you, God. And he goes, that plan doesn't work because there's something wrong inside of you. And what needs to happen is an acknowledgement that my goodness is never good enough and my badness is worse than I thought. And i got to come to the place where I recognize I need him. And, and when Palm Sunday is, as we think about it, it's this incredible group of people who are worshiping the works and acts of God. He's healed. He's just raised Lazarus. They're so excited. They worship him because he did what they couldn't do. 
So I'm going to ask you just to stand with me as we close this, would you? And I, I, I'm going to, I, I don't know, this can apply to everybody, but if you've never, ever experienced the grace of God, invited the Spirit of God in your life, taken and said, you know, I, I do have sins, I have hurt others, I've offended you, God. I know that I need you. I feel the guilt of my sin. I know there's power in the name of Jesus. I'm going to ask you with your head bowed. If you want to get out of the saving business, would you let Jesus come into your heart right now with the power that's in his name and recreate your heart, give you new desires, place in you his love, and invite him in. Don't be too proud. Don't stand back on this. If Jesus is knocking on your heart and you've never said, I'm done trying to, I'm, I'm getting out of the saving business. doesn't mean you don't participate in trust, but I'm, I'm done trying to do it that way. If that's your heart, would you just, I'm going to ask, please, your head bowed. I, I don't do this hardly. Raise your hand if you just say, Jesus, I want you in my life. Thank you. I see that. Just open your heart and say, Jesus, I want you. Thank you. Thank you. And then, and then if you would put your hands on, those of you who are, you're in this place right now, and, and your focus has been on Jesus changing something around you. And he's inviting you to participate with him. Because he wants to change something in you. If that's your heart, would you just say, Jesus, do that? I, you know, when Jesus makes a promise, he makes a promise... He will fulfill it. He will keep it. Here's two things about the promise Jesus makes in your life. Keep this in your heart. He will keep it and fulfill it. And here's the second thing. He never changes his mind. He is not wishy-washy. He's not going, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember I said that, but I don't mean it. Wherever you're at right now, whatever that external situation is, say, Jesus, I give you my heart in this, and I ask you to do something in me. Because as you work in me, I know you will begin to impact the things around me. Father, we pray these things. We ask you to come and fill us now with your presence and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please remain standing. I don't, oh, am I, I can't, I should, the notes are right. Let me look real quick. This is our instructions. Um, We're done. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing for you. No. (laughs) Let's give Jesus a hand for what he's done in your life. Now go in in the peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of righteousness, King over this community that brings wholeness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.